morning, if you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Romans 16. Romans 16 is where we'll be focusing for a few minutes in our studies this morning. We will jump over to one other place, but Romans 16 will be home base uh, for the next few minutes as we enter this part of our worship where we study from the Bible. And I appreciate so much the uh, work that's been done by those who have led us in worship this morning. Hope it has been good for you the way it's been good for me. Uh, to be here and to be worshiping God, thinking about these things that Jesus has done for us and uh, thinking about the relationship we have with God and with one another. It has been a blessing for me. Thank you for those who are joining us online. We know we have many who are here and many who are joining us in other formats. We just want to welcome everyone and invite you to study along with us. Romans 16 and verse 1, the text says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kincray, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So this is a verse where Paul simply commends Phoebe, but he does it in really glowing terms. She is a servant of the church. Receive her, help her. She has been a patron. She has been a blessing to me. I don't know about you, but usually when I read a letter like Romans, the closing part of a letter in the New Testament is sort of flyover country. You got a lot of names of people, most of them we don't know who they are. You've got some greetings, you've got some last admonitions that tend to kind of run together, and there's some wrap-up language that we can just fly right past. Usually, the heavy lifting in a letter has already happened by the time you get to the end. But Romans 16 holds something bigger and better than what we typically think of at times like this, when we get to the end of a letter. Paul greets and commends and encourages a number of godly women. And I want to think about that with you for a few minutes this morning. When we talk about women's roles, we often talk about them only in negative terms. There are things that women are not to do. And that leaves us with this really good sense of what women shouldn't do, but with really no sense at all of what they should of what would be good, what would be a blessing, what it would look like to be a Christian woman, only what it would look like in not doing certain things. In fact, many men and women seem to think that if women don't have a role in public teaching, that they have no role. They are just here to be silent, and their work in the Lord is basically to be silent. But Paul doesn't have that view. And in Romans 16, it looks very different when you start thinking about and examining what women actually did in the New Testament era. See, this record is full of godly women. Now, they are not well-known gospel preachers. But really, how many people are well-known gospel preachers? Most of the time, service to Jesus, both in the New Testament era and today, is not done by well-known gospel preachers. That service is typically done by ordinary, not well-known men and women who follow Jesus. Men and women like you and me. So what I want to do is just examine the women of Romans 16 for a few minutes this morning. And I want to think about what we can do. And I want to stimulate our imaginations about the work that Christ calls us to, both men and women. So let's just talk about these women for a few minutes. First, let's talk about Phoebe that we started with. Let's look again in verse 1, Romans 16 and verse 1. It says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at King Cray, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Phoebe is described in verse 1 as a servant, or your version might say a deaconess of the church at King Cray. 
which is a church, a city near the city of Corinth. And Paul gives her a personal commendation to the church at Rome. She is evidently traveling to Rome. Maybe she's on business in Rome, or maybe it's that she is performing some service for the church at Kincray that brings her to Rome. But it says she is a servant of the church. I wonder what's involved in being a servant of a church. Have you ever thought about it? Servant of a church. That would mean, at the very least, that you are serving among the members of the group where you are. That you are known for being a servant of those people. It also may involve that when that group wants to do something, you may be the conduit through which they work. I'm here at the insistence. I'm here as a servant of the church who has sent me to do a certain thing. Either of those would certainly fit Phoebe. Now, I don't know if this was a regular named position for Phoebe, that she is a capital D deaconess, the way we think of deacons today. But really, and that word, by the way, in verse 1, the word for servant is the word in Greek, deacon, that is used to describe male deacons who have the, what we would call the capital D deacons. So some people say, well, this means there were female deacons. To me, and I know that this may sound a little strange to you, that's kind of immaterial. Because deacon is a servant role. It is not a leadership role. It's not as if Phoebe is making all the decisions for the church. She is serving the church. And whatever you say about that, whether that's a regular thing she did, or whether that's something that she's just doing errands for the church, or she's just notable in the church, whatever you would say about it, she is a servant and she is willing to serve. It is perfectly appropriate for a church to entrust its work to women and say this is going to be a woman who is capable of serving us. Phoebe was willing to serve. So listen to what Paul says about her. In verse 2 he says that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. That is, when she comes to you, she's not a stranger. She, has my, she knows me and she has a good testimony from me and she is serving God's people where she is. She is a servant of the church at Kincray. So you receive her in the right way. Paul sometimes seems to have concerns that Christians are not going to welcome other Christians the way they should. He worries about that with Timothy. He worries about that with uh, Epaphroditus. He worries about that with Titus. He also worries about that with uh, Onesimus and Philemon. Always it's, are they going to receive them? And so he'll write a letter and say, hey, be sure you accept them well. Receive them well. Give them the hospitality that they deserve. He also says in verse 2, help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So support her in the work she's doing, but also know that she is a patron, which is a word that often means she has financially supported many, including me. It reminds me of Luke 8. Remember in Luke 8, it talks about the, the people that accompanied Jesus and then the people who sort of bankrolled the disciples and Jesus going around from place to place. And the 12 were with him, it says, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So notice we're talking specifically about women, and those women specifically provided for him out of their means. They're the ones. So the, the disciples, sure, we left everything and followed you, but who paid for them to have food? I know sometimes Jesus miraculously made food, but that seems to be the exception rather than the rule. The rule is somebody helped them. Somebody said, you know what? I believe in him. I'm going to cut a check for this, so to speak. And so those are patrons 
the people behind the scenes, and many of them are women. In fact, the New Testament record shows a number of influential women like that. Women like Lydia and Chloe, who seem to take the opportunity to say, I have some influence, I have some wealth, I'm a believer, I'm going to do something for the Lord. What do they do for the Lord? They offer their homes, they offer their money, they offer their influence, and they say, I'm going to serve Jesus with what I have here. And Phoebe is one of those. The second woman that we see in Romans 16 is Prisca. Look in verse 3. It says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Now, we usually call her Priscilla. Uh, Prisca looks to be a kind of nickname that Paul had for her. And yes, Paul had a nickname for her because they were close. They had lived together. They were good friends. I want to show you a little bit about the history here. This is the only place we're going to turn that's not Romans 16. So put your marker here. We'll come back in just a moment. We're going to go back to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. There is some history with Paul and Aquila and Priscilla. Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla when they come to Corinth at the same time Paul is in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. So it says, Acts 18 and verse 1, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So, interesting thing, circumstances conspired, or you might say providence conspired to bring them together. They're in the same city at the same time. Because Aquila and Priscilla had been in Rome, and yet Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And Paul happened to come to Corinth because he kind of got run out of Thessalonica and Berea and kind of got run out of Athens too. So here we all come together, and they are tent makers. They have the same trade, and so they stay together and they work together. What is not clear is whether they were Christians already or whether Paul converted them. But one way or another, they are a team, and the three of them work together so that when Paul leaves Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla leave too. They go to Ephesus, and they're going to be in Ephesus a little later, a little later in Acts 18. Look down in verse 24. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit... He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Notice again, be sure you welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who had through grace believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. What I want you to notice here, you've got Apollos who is an impressive man, mighty in the scriptures, eloquent, fervent in spirit, and yet he is wrong about the baptism of John, and he is wrong about the full scope of what the Christian message is. So this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, this team teaching husband-wife duo, take him aside, and they teach him the way of God more accurately. This is impressive to me because Apollos becomes a major figure in the early church. And one of the main reasons he does is because he gets straightened out at this point. If he never got that figured out, he could never have done the good work he did going over to Corinth, 
When you read 1 Corinthians, you read about Apollos and the work that he did there. He never could have become the powerful preacher of truth that he became because this husband-wife team just said, hey, can we talk to you for a minute? Get, we're not going to get in his face in public. We're not getting into a shouting match in the synagogue. We just want to say, hey, we think there's more to the story than what you know. Look in, uh, in Acts 18 here in verse 26. Did you notice that Priscilla is mentioned first? When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside. Very often when Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned, Priscilla is listed first, including in our text in Romans 16. Read Prisca and Aquila. And so many scholars have said, well, that's really strange in the ancient world. Usually the man is listed first. In fact, that's still kind of a custom for us today. Usually we're going to say Mr. and Mrs. and we're going to have the man's name first. But some would say, well, maybe that means that Priscilla was sort of in front in the marriage. I don't know that. I do know. I think we all know couples or families where the wife is much more dynamic and notable than the man. And that may be in this couple. But here is what I think is more important than who's first. Aquila and Priscilla are always, always, always mentioned together. They're a team. They work together. Now let's go back to Romans 16. I want to show you what Paul says as later on, much later than the events we've just read about, Paul is writing about them. And now they are in Rome again because he is writing to the church at Rome. Verse 3, Romans 16, 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. That's a common term Paul uses for ministry workers. It's the term he uses of Apollos and Titus, of John Mark and Demas and Luke and Aquila and Priscilla. Verse 4, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. They risk their necks for my life. That might even be literal, but I think risk your neck is sort of an expression for, they, they went above and beyond for me, even at great danger to themselves. We actually know of two occasions where Paul was in serious physical danger and Aquila and Priscilla would have at least known about it. One in Corinth where there was kind of a riot and one in Ephesus where there was definitely a riot, not even kind of. So is he talking about that or is he speaking more metaphorically? We don't know, but his point is Paul is thankful for them. And not only am I thankful, he says in verse four, but all the churches of the Gentiles are thankful because this is a couple who are Jews yet who are in the forefront of the movement to take the gospel to the Gentiles. They're in Gentile cities like Rome and Corinth and Ephesus, and yet they are teaching and living among Gentiles and spreading the Christian message. This is who they are. The other thing that I want to say before we leave Prisca and Aquila is verse 5, where he says, greet also the church in their house. There's always a church in their house. When Paul writes 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, he says, Aquila and Priscilla greet you, along with a church in their house. And here, they're now in Rome, greet the church in their house. I am convinced, and there's some argument about this among some scholars, but I'm convinced when it talks about a church in your house, it's talking about the idea of, of a small group, a house church that would meet together. And that when Roman Christians are written to, there are several house churches that are under that same umbrella of the Roman church. And what I think is, he is saying here is, Wherever Aquila and Priscilla go, they're hosting. They're saying, come to our house. We'll be the ones 
who are going to be key cogs in whatever the Christian movement is doing in our city. We want to be on the front row. So that's who Aquila and Priscilla are. They are a husband and wife team. They are a hospitality team. They are a teaching team. A Christian couple can serve in ways that a single man like Paul cannot. And they did. That's what Aquila and Priscilla did. They are repeatedly singled out for commendation in the scriptures. And in fact, never in all the times they are mentioned is anything negative said about them. And so Paul says, greet them. Third woman you see in Romans 16 is Mary. Mary is in verse 6. Greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Well, what can I say about that? This doesn't seem to be any of the Marys of the Gospels. There are a bunch of Marys in the Gospels. But we don't know anything about this Mary or what she did, except that she worked hard and she did it for them. So I'm going to leave it at that. The next one we see is Junia, down in verse 7. Verse 7 says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Now it is likely, this is my interpretation here, and so I'm on a little bit of shaky ground, and I'll explain why in a minute. It is likely to me that Andronicus and Junia are a male-female pair, that we might be talking about a husband and wife. Uh, There is some controversy because there are some manuscript differences, and some versions have Junius, which would be a male name instead of Junia, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But he says there in verse 7 that they are my kinsmen, which probably refers to the fact that they are fellow Jews, and he also says, my fellow prisoners. Paul is not currently in prison as he writes this, but He has a connection to everyone who is suffering for their faith and goes to prison for their faith. But think about what it means to say that someone is my fellow prisoner. It means that they have had a threat posed against them. And if they are a husband and wife team, then they have a threat posed against them as a couple. And yet they have refused to back down. Have you thought about what you would do if that threat was pointed at you and your family? I mean, wouldn't you be tempted Wouldn't you at least consider, there's got to be a different way. There's got to be something else we can do. There's got to be some other remedy. And yet they are willing to suffer for their faith. They did not back down. And so it says in verse 7, they are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Some versions say they are well known among the apostles. And that's the reason there is some dispute about the names. Because if it's well known among the apostles, then we might be calling them apostles and saying they're well-known as members of the apostle group. Well, I'll say a couple of things about that. For one, sometimes the word apostle is used in a non-technical sense, as in not just the 12. Uh, Barnabas is called an apostle, Acts chapter 14. Uh, Others, you would just be saying this is someone who is sent out to do the work of teaching and preaching. And even that's a woman, a man, that doesn't really matter. Those people can be sent out and do that work. But the other is this word here in verse 17, I mean verse 7, that says they are well-known to the apostles can mean well-known as in one of their own or the apostles know about them. And I think that's probably the better way. I think what Paul is saying is Andronicus and Junia, the apostles have heard of you. They know what you've done. They know about you suffering for the cause and that you have worked hard for the Lord. The next group of women in Romans 16 is Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis. This is verse 12. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. These are all female names. Tryphena and Tryphosa, uh, scholars think, are probably sisters because of the similarity in the names. 
Uh, but one way or another, they are linked together in the text. And they are also called in verse 12, uh, let's see, workers in the Lord. And then Persis is also a female name, and it says she has worked hard in the Lord. I don't know who all those women are, but I know Paul says, I know enough about them to know their names and to know their work and to say, greet them. I know them by name. The next group of women, I'm sorry, the next one is in verse 13. It's Rufus's mother. Verse 13, greet Rufus chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. This is kind of cool. I just want to share this with you. This may be the Rufus whose dad carried Jesus's cross. Simon of Cyrene was told to carry the cross of Jesus. This is Mark 15, 21. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, I think the reason Mark would put that in, the father of Alexander and Rufus, is because maybe the people he is writing the gospel and sending it to would know Alexander and Rufus. But what a cool story that is. Think about it. Simon of Cyrene just seems to be a passerby, a random stranger to the crucifixion event. And either he becomes a disciple of Jesus himself afterward, or at least his wife and sons do. Isn't that awesome? What a story that would be. I didn't even know anything about Jesus. And here I am, I'm in Jerusalem, and the Roman soldier grabs me and says, you carry that cross. And so I carried it. And later on, I found out what that was all about. And he would probably, I mean, I mean, if we had Simon of Cyrene here, I don't know that we'd go a service without saying, hey, Simon, why don't you go tell your story again? Hey, it's time, it's time for Simon's story. Now, it's likely because of the way this is written that Simon is dead now because he does not say, greet your dad. But of course, we're several decades past the crucifixion now. So, you know, life happens and things intervene and people get older. But what he says about Rufus's mother in verse 13 is that his mother has been a mother to me as well. So in some, spe- some way, she has so- shown special love and service to Paul, and they have a personal connection beyond just the idea of uh, Simon of Cyrene. Paul knows she's there, and he doesn't just say, greet Rufus, greet Rufus and his mom. And the last group of women in Romans 16 that we're going to talk about is Julia and Nereus' sister and Olympus. They're in verse 15. Verse 15 says, Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Now, I think at this point, we're addressing house churches. Like in verse 14, there is a a group of people, and probably the first one is the uh, patriarch of that house church, the one who's kind of the, the main one. It's his home. And then there's maybe his family or some of the leading figures in that little house church. And so if that's the case, then we're probably talking about Philologus as the patriarch and Julia as his wife. And maybe Nereus and her sister are our kids, their kids. Uh, we don't know who Olympus is. Here's what I want to say about that. If that is the case, and I understand I'm on conjecture here, but I will just say it this way. If you're hosting a house church, It means you are devoting yourself to sacrificing your time and your money and your space day after day, week after week, year after year. You can't just check out if you're hosting a house church. You can't just expect other people to do the work for you. You can't just say, man, I just didn't get a lot out of that. So what? Everybody's coming over probably tomorrow. 
In other words, you are invested and sacrificing in a deep way. And sometimes I wonder if moving into a larger facility and saying nobody, no one person is responsible for this doesn't lower our commitment level because we don't have to be quite as invested when that's true. But the women of Romans 16, they show they're willing to have that kind of attention and focus on the work. All right, we got all that. So what do we do with all that? These verses don't focus our attention on what women cannot do. There's nothing here about what women can't do. Instead, they bring to mind all the different ways that they can serve and help. And I especially want to point out the common thread of work. Did you see it? Let's look again. Look in verse 1. I commend you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at King Cray. In verse 2, it says that she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. In verse 3, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers. Verse 6, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Work, work, work. Sometimes we will sing, I want to be a worker for the Lord. These are women who worked. And Paul says, when I think about them, I want them to know I see your work. And that's what it is. It is labor you do because you love Jesus. And it is not somehow lesser because it's not some public teaching role. In the same way that all the men in these sections are not somehow lesser because they're not famous preachers. That's not the only thing you do for the Lord. Nor are they the only people that matter. Sometimes the work that women do involved risk. Traveling to faraway places like Phoebe does. Or risking your neck for Paul. Or going to prison for your faith. Work is always a costly sacrifice. We're always giving something up. We're always investing ourselves in something. And that means we turn our attention from what's personal to us, you know, the stuff we care about, our jobs and our families, and pulls our attention toward a work that's bigger than us and our ambitions. These women give themselves over to that work. So these women were focused on serving the Lord, spreading the message of Jesus, no matter what. Working, serving, suffering. They did it all. So what I want to say to my Christian sisters is that this is your cause too. This is your work too. We are in this together. And it is certainly not a men only type thing. In fact, I would say, and I think that I am safe, on safe ground to say that we would all agree that you have a similar testimony to give. I would say that the most influential people in my life have overwhelmingly been the women in my life. And the people who have shared with me the gospel and been the spiritual anchors for me have overwhelmingly been godly Christian women. And I am thankful to God that they did not say, you know what? Because I don't preach publicly, I don't have anything to do. Because without them, I would not be serving the Lord at all. So I say to my Christian sisters, you are not second-class citizens. You are not sideline sitters. That is not God's will for you, nor is it my will for you. You are workers in the Lord, and this is your cause too. Now, it's true 
that the Bible teaches that the public assembly has some rules about women teaching. I would add it has some rules about men teaching and how men speak and all of that too. But I really want to emphasize this, and I know this may sound strange to you coming from a preacher, but can I just say public preaching is a small fraction of what we do as Christians. A very small fraction. Frankly, I think we overemphasize, tremendously overemphasize the importance of this. This is what we do for a few minutes, once or twice a week. There are a lot more hours in the week than the ones we spend here at the building. And there are a lot more things we say and do than what a preacher can say or do in just a few minutes. I think we overfocus and overemphasize men and what men say. Paul does not do that here. Paul just says, these are people, men and women, doing the work of the Lord. And I want to greet them and encourage them and praise them. So my encouragement to all of us is to find a need and go fill it. To find a way to serve and go serve. And remember, this is your cause too. Not to feel frustrated by certain things that we can't do. Because the truth is, we all have things, including me, that we can't do. But instead to say, what can I do and how can I serve? Would you pray with me about that? Our God and Father, we thank you so much for times like these that we can gather, study your word, think together about your will for us. We're thankful for this section, Father, that does more than close a letter, but that gives us an insight and a window into what life was like in New Testament churches. We're thankful, Father, for these good men and women who have shown us an example of how to serve you and how to sacrifice for you and how to even risk their lives for you. Help us, Father, to be encouraged by their example. I pray for our congregation, Father. I pray for our men, and I pray especially this time for our women. I'm thankful, Father, for their their good example and their hearts that desire to serve you. And I pray, Father, that you'll help them and encourage them to continue their work for you. Help all of us, Father, to seek ways that we can serve others. Help all of us, Father, to take advantage of the gifts you've given us and the time that you've given us and the relationships you've given us to do your work. Help us to teach as we have opportunity. Help us to be people who live your gospel so that others are drawn to you because of us, that we can gain a hearing by the good works that we do before others. Father, I pray that you'll bless this congregation to be full of people, men and women, who want to do your will more than anything else. Bless us, Father. Help us to become that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Might be someone here this morning who... There might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the invitation, and this is the time we've set aside, that we're going to sing a song to encourage you if you have not yet given your life over to the Lord Jesus and you're ready to do that, we want to invite you to come make that known, to be baptized into Christ and turn away from your sins. We would love to help you do that. Or if there's some need that you have that we can pray with you about, some problem or crisis in your life that we can help you with, we invite you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.